Welcome to Civil War Talk Radio with host Jerry Prokopovich. Our program covers all aspects of Civil War history, from the battlefields to the home fronts, and features guest experts, plus insight from your host as they discuss the most critical period in American history. Now, here is your host, Jerry Prokopovich. This is Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich. As the Civil War has receded into history, now 150 years plus and counting, so have all the events that followed it. The First World War, in which both of my grandfathers fought, used to seem like part of living memory, but now it's past its centennial, and the last doughboys are long gone, just like the last Yanks and Rebels. In all that time, few scholars have thought to view the two conflicts comparatively, until now. Canazorn, Wangzerchanelai, and David J. Silby have edited Wars, Civil, and Great, the American experience in the Civil War and World War I. We'll talk with them tonight on Civil War Talk Radio. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. Voice America programs are now available on your favorite connected device, including Amazon, Alexa, and Google Home. Through streams with Apple Podcasts, TuneIn, and iHeartRadio, listening to your favorite show is as easy as saying the show name followed by the word podcast. Hey, Alexa, play Finding Your Frequency podcast. If that doesn't work, try adding on TuneIn or on iHeartRadio or on Apple Podcasts. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com You are listening to Civil War Talk Radio. If you have a question or comment about our program, please send an email to prokopovichg at ecu dot edu. That's P-R-O-K-O-P O-W-I-C-Z-G at E-C-U dot E-D-U. Now, back to Civil War Talk Radio. And welcome to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, coming to you tonight from the usual location, the third floor of the Brewster Building on the campus of East Carolina University in Greenville, North Carolina, not Greenville, South Carolina, Uh But I'm not speaking for the university, I'm not speaking for ECU, for anybody else, nor are my guests speaking for anyone but themselves, as we always do. Well, I mentioned Greenville, South Carolina, because that's where I spent Thanksgiving. I hope you had a good Thanksgiving, if you celebrate the American version of Thanksgiving. And if you celebrate the Canadian or any other version, I hope you still had uh, multiple Thanksgivings. This year... Uh, my wife and I went to Greenville, South Carolina, because that's where our older daughter has started her residency as a new MD and doesn't have a lot of time off. So we had Thanksgiving at her place. Our other daughter came in, and we had a wonderful time. Very much something to give thanks for, and hope you had some good family time as well. I'm also giving thanks uh, for the new headphones that I now have. Uh, I asked in the last show if you would consider uh, your in making your 
regular donations to Civil War Talk Radio to consider donating to the uh, the book and bourbon and other things fund which is not a 501c3, which is not tax deductible. I use it for whatever. And uh, helping me get a new set of headphones to replace ones I've been wearing pretty much since we stopped using phone and started using computers uh, here at the show. And I'm I'm happy to acknowledge uh, longtime listener Frank Tartaglia as the person who's gift generously made it possible to purchase these headphones and name them after him. They now have a piece of tape on the top that says Frank. Uh, these headphones will forever after be known as Frank uh, and uh, in honor of, of, of his generous contribution. If you want something named after you at Civil War Talk Radio World Headquarters, uh, go to impedimentsofwar.org, click the donation button, and in the comments with your contribution, you can tell me what your interests, what, what you'd like to have named for you. There's not a lot of um, uh, uh, you know, equipment, not a lot of, of, of assets here involved with the show that don't belong to the university, uh, although not using it on their time this evening, uh, but I'm sure I could find something. In the past, uh, the fund has been used to purchase many things, uh, books on occasion, bourbon also on occasion. Most of it this past year, a large chunk has gone to Civil War battlefield preservation, um, something that that I'm sure you believe in as I do. Uh, The American Battlefield Trust is the, the big dog in the field, but also... You, the listeners, through the Books and Bourbon Fund, have contributed to the Central Virginia Battlefields Trust, where uh, our, our friend Tim Talbot is is active, and the Wise Fork uh, movement to preserve the battlefield here in North Carolina that the State Department of Transportation wants to put a highway overpass in the middle of. The effort is bearing fruit. Uh, some portions of of the land that was fought over are now being set aside for preservation. Uh, the the battle's not over, but uh, the Wise Fork movement is is getting somewhere. And that is in contrast to what's happened here on campus to the ECU football team. We last spoke uh, what two weeks ago before Thanksgiving, and I was all excited. The Pirates had won a game, uh, but they lost their last game in dismal fashion. Uh, They've fired the offensive coordinator, can't really afford to fire the coach because of his buyout. Fan base is up in arms, glad the season is over. It has been a uh, disaster start to finish. Uh, Still fun to go to the games. And my other team, my alma mater, is going to be in the playoffs. Uh, The Wolverines beat Ohio State uh, with all that's swirling around the program. Not going to go into that, but when you beat Ohio State, it makes all things right. Uh, and my other team, uh, Aiden S. and his youth hockey team up in Canada, uh, don't know their name, where they play, anything about them, just want them to do well. Um, and if, if because he his dad makes them listen to the show when they're driving to away games in the car, so I've, I figure the least I can do is say, go hockey team. I don't know the name of the team, but you can find out the name of who's going to be on the show next week by going to impedimentsofwar.org, and you'll see next week we'll have the what 
was going to be the last show of the fall season on December 6th. John Banks, uh, author of A Civil War Road Trip of a Lifetime, Antietam, Gettysburg, and Beyond. But we've added one more show because the book was just too interesting to pass up. On December 13th, last show of the fall season, uh, the author is Howell Rains, and his book is called Silent Cavalry, How Union Soldiers from Alabama Helped Sherman Burn Atlanta and then got written out of history. So we'll talk about that. Tonight, though, we're going to talk about the Civil War and the First World War. Uh, these are topics that, that typically don't get uh, uh, looked at in the same light, and uh, thus it's, it's, it's time someone did that. And the people who've done that are... Uh, the editors of a book called Wars, Civil, and Great, The American Experience in the Civil War and World War I. It is edited by David J. Silby and Canazorn Wongsrich Analy. Uh, gentlemen, unmute your microphones and uh, welcome to the show. Thank you so much, Jerry. Thank you very much. Uh, good, good to have you both here. Um, let me... First, make sure our listeners know who is who. Um, uh, uh, where to start? Uh, well, first, let me start by apologizing for mispronouncing names. Um, and, of course, I'm talking to uh, uh, Dr. Silby when I say that, uh, <laughs> because for the last couple shows, I was referring, mentioning your book and calling you uh, David Sibley after the <laughs> tent. Uh, and finally, I looked at the cover and realized I'd drastic mistake. So we fixed it on the website, and I fixed it tonight, uh, and, and hopefully we'll we'll get it right from now on. Um, I wanted that's, to ask you... Oh, go that, ahead. That's not a problem at all. I, I live in a world with uh, Sibley Jewelry and Sibley Hospital, and so uh, my name is the uh, unusual one in that, um, so I appreciate the atten attention to detail. I grew up listening to Detroit Tigers, sponsored by Sibley, Michigan's largest Florsheim shoe dealer. <laughs> um, and that, that just rang a bell when you said that. Absolutely. Uh, uh, so, um, and uh, uh, Kid, if I may call you that, uh, uh, your name probably has been mispronounced, as mine has over the, the years. Um, can we go by first names tonight? Call me Jerry. Absolutely. Yes, we're, we're in a special club, Jerry. It, you know how it is, then. Uh, yes, absolutely. <laughs> uh, uh, that, and I hope I did all right uh, did. in the introduction. Um, the uh, David, you went to Duke University, got your PhD there. When when were you there? Uh, so I got to Duke uh, in the fall of 1990, and I came from Cornell University, which is not known for its sporting prowess. And I showed up at Duke University in 1990 and the basketball team promptly won two national championships. And I I felt and still feel that that was cause and effect that, that because yes. I was there, clearly Christian Leitner and Bobby Hurley and, and Coach Krzyzewski uh, performed better than they, they would have otherwise. Um, I graduated uh, in 1999 um, 
my dissertation was on the British Army in the First World War. So I was over in England and, and London for a number of years doing research. Wow. It, we almost overlapped there. I started grad school in 1986 and oh. had was admitted to Duke and was quite excited about military history, uh, my, my longtime passion. Uh, but I also got admitted to Harvard, and I have to remind the listeners I have a Harvard degree as often as possible. Um, <laughs> and I decided, you know, just for the sheer employability of, of the name, uh, I would go there instead. Plus, they don't let uh, the students teach very much at ah. the, the PhD students, and I really wanted to get get on that and start teaching. Yep. So uh, I, I didn't go there, but what a wonderful program um, Duke had then, and, and I'm sure still has for military history. It um, does, and and it's it combined with UNC to offer a, a joint program in military history, which sort of combined the the strengths of both departments. Um, as a as a Cornell undergraduate, I'm not allowed to comment uh, on Harvard. Mm. Um, but, uh, uh, so we will leave that, uh, up in the air. Um, but, uh, yes, the other Ivy league school in Massachusetts is, uh, is an excellent one. Well, we will, we'll leave that there. And, uh, speaking of Massachusetts kid, you're the director of research at the Massachusetts historical society. Uh, how did you get that gig? That is correct. I act, the Massachusetts historical society was actually the first place that gave me financial support uh, for my dissertation. So I've been coming to this place for a very long time, and I stayed in touch with them, and um, I came back for their conference on the Civil War, and then we, <clears throat> we, we, I knew the folks, and the position came open, and it was just too, too good to pass up. I taught in West Texas for seven and a half years, mm. and the sources that I wanted to look at we're 2,000 miles away, and now the sources I want to look at are literally in the building in which I work. Uh, so it's it's wonderful to have the, the command of these wonderful archives. It's 14 million manuscript pages and counting, and we are the first historical society in the nation. We have some absolute Civil War treasures. So, Jerry, you've got to come visit. I, I absolutely do, and that's open to the public if people want to make an appointment and do research. Is that right? It is free and open to the public. Come look at John Adams's papers. You know, there are more Thomas Jefferson papers under our roof than there are in all of Virginia. Wow. Well, that, that I had the good fortune to work at the Lincoln Museum in Fort Wayne, Indiana for nine years. And I, I know the feeling of being able to say, boy, I could really use a look at that document. Oh, it's in the next room. Um, hmm. it, it's, well, it's a wonderful uh, thing to have that kind of source access. Well, more what, than that, I, I just real quick, I've got, we yeah. also have Robert Gouldshaw's sword uh, from the 54th Massachusetts and the pen that signed the Emancipation Proclamation. Wow. Now the the, uh, the the Lincoln Museum. If we're going to start bragging about things here, we had the inkwell from which the Emancipation Proclamation was signed. Uh, you put those two together. There you go. We'll do the traveling exhibit. Uh, um, sadly, the Lincoln Museum is no more, but the inkwell is now at the Indiana Historical Society. So you can call your colleagues there and and. Uh, get those two two wonderful artifacts together. Well, the the topic tonight, uh, World War One and the Civil War. It, in if you were giving the the thirty second elevator speech, why should we look at both of these together? 
They're 50 years apart. That's not a long time. The people who fought in the Civil War were still alive during World War One, and World War One was greatly influenced, that generation was, by the Civil War. Think about the Chief Justice of the United States Supreme Court, was a, a Confederate veteran. Oliver Wendell Holmes Jr., a Union veteran. Pershing remembers his father almost being killed in Missouri during the war. Uh, Jefferson Davis and, and, and Abraham Lincoln are very much on Woodrow Wilson's minds. Uh, so its shadow is even greater for that great war generation the Civil War was. So the, yeah, the, David, uh, sorry, just to jump in and, no, and please. affirm everything Kid said. These are both iconic wars. These are wars that define the history around them. The Civil War is the single most important war in American history. And and World War One, although less important, the American side is the war that defines the 20th century in Europe. And so figuring out what they meant to each other and engaging with each in comparison seemed to, I think, both of us, the critical, a really critical thing that hadn't been done quite yet. Well, it, it's done very creatively here. You've got a series of essays, uh, you've each written essays for this book, and then you've got other scholars, uh, uh, some of whom have been on this show, uh, our listeners will be familiar with. Uh, so we'll take a break, and we'll talk about what these essays have to say. When we come back, they are part of the book called Wars, Civil, and Great, The American Experience in the Civil War and World War I. It is edited by David J. Silby in Canazorn, Wangsar Channelai. I'm Jerry Prokopovich. This is Civil War Talk Radio. Stimulating talk it gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com. Psych Up Live with host Dr. Suzanne Phillips offers a psychological perspective on coping with common and current life issues. This show addresses topics as varied as marital stress, insomnia, depression, raising teens, campus violence, and building self-resilience. Listen in as Dr. Phillips and her guest experts share the latest in books, findings, and information that will inform and enhance your life journey. Psych Up Live is heard every Thursday at 2 p.m. Eastern Time, 11 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Voice America programs are now available on your favorite connected device, including Amazon, Alexa, and Google Home. Through streams with Apple Podcasts, TuneIn, and iHeartRadio, listening to your favorite show is as easy as saying the show name followed by the word podcast. Hey, Alexa, play Finding Your Frequency podcast. If that doesn't work, try adding on TuneIn or on iHeartRadio or on Apple Podcasts. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. You are listening to Civil War Talk Radio. If you have a question or comment about our program, please send an email to prokopovichg at ecu dot edu. That's P-R-O-K-O-P. O W I C Z G at ECU dot EDU. Now, back to Civil War Talk Radio. 
And welcome back to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, talking tonight with David J. Selby and Cannonshorn Wanzer-Channelai, author of or editors of Wars Civil and Great: The American Experience in the Civil War and World War One. The this is a collection of essays that look at different elements of these two events and compare them. And I guess the easiest way to jump in is, is start talking about these essays, not necessarily in the order they appear. Um, and kid, if, if I could start with you write uh, in, in one of two essays that you have in the book about the questions of, of, uh, of civil liberties of dissent of, of anti-war sentiment during the Civil War uh, and during the First World War. Uh, listeners, if you're listening to the show, you know something about suspension of habeas corpus during the war. Uh, I say the war, I mean the Civil War. Uh, you, you know some of those stories, but what about World War One? Um, what what what's the takeaway of comparing these two in terms of uh, of, of dissent, loyalty, government action, and so on? Well, Jerry, you're absolutely right that the war, and I, David might disagree with that, but that's just a fact. Um, <laughs> um, it, it, it struck me after comparing these two periods that. One could actually have more freedom of speech during the Civil War in Lincoln's America than during Wilson's America, during Wilson's time. And it's not necessarily because Wilson had more of an infrastructure for policing uh, dissent within the community. He had the, 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 the laws, the infamous laws from the First World War. He had um, a justice department, which was not, uh, did, not, did not exist during the Civil War. Um, and he had a, a stronger federal government um, in many ways. No, it was because he harnessed the power of the public. He used the public, he asked the public to basically police themselves to, to a certain extent. And that's where we get this vigilantism. That's where we get these um, attacks against German Americans, these, uh, the, the, these, these, these brutal, uh, vicious assaults that take place all in the name of patriotism. So there's this superheated patriotism that uh, Wilson and his officials tap into. Now, of course, the purposes of the war are rather different. Lincoln has to look to the future and to stitch the nation back together after this conflict. So he has to, he has to placate both sides, he has to play it lightly and loose. Um, and, and, and he relies on his military officials to really imprison those who are the most vocal um, and, and, and most dangerous of his critics. And after a an oath of loyalty, they're let go. Um, Wilson, of course, is fine with demonizing the forces he's fighting against during World War One, and sort of lets the worst passions of the American people loose uh, during this conflict. And so, really, weirdly enough, you can say more about the president uh, during the Civil War than during World War One, supposedly in a war for democracy. That's right. If you look at the uh the Espionage and Sedition Acts, 1917-1918, the United States government essentially makes it a crime to, to criticize the president or the armed forces. And uh, the, kind of, the, the kind of rhetoric one sees on social media today 
uh, would certainly violate that law. Uh, but even um, much of the rhetoric from, from the Civil War era would have violated that law. But Lincoln doesn't arrest everybody who says a bad thing about him. That's correct. Yes. Um, and I mean, you, uh, your listeners know full well the horrible, horrible things that people used to write about Lincoln, say about Lincoln. Um, but that's, um, again, uh, he doesn't necessarily have the capacity to arrest everyone, but he also has to tread very lightly, um, given that it's a divided country and it's a divided party um, to a certain extent as well during that time period. So they're 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 playing with different hands for sure. But I would say that um, there's much more civil liber- there are more civil liberties in Lincoln's America. This is uh, that's a point that uh, one of your authors, Brian Dirk, makes in his essay uh, about comparing Lincoln and Wilson. Uh, I mean, he points out that Wilson has tools at his disposal that Lincoln didn't have uh, to to affect public opinion. That right. there, there were what what kind of uh, how does that play into this? Well, I mean, there's much more of, of access to the press by the time Wilson is president. Um, he has uh, the Creel Committee and he has the propaganda wing that can help sell the war <clears throat> and, and make the case as to why people should, um, should should watch out for seditious activity and whatnot. So that infrastructure, that bureaucracy is is simply non-existent in Lincoln's time. I mean, the man was running the country or the, the executive mansion with, uh, what, two assistants. Uh, that's just that's just not there. He has to write a letter. Uh, Horace Greeley has to publish it. And that's how people are going to see um, what Lincoln has to say. But, um, yeah, Le- uh, Wilson certainly has a more direct line to the American people. And it, your point about vigilantism is interesting, that, that it's not the the strong arm of the federal government that tries to crush dissent under under Wilson, but that, as you say, he encourages the public to find out what your neighbor's thinking, and, and if it's bad, report it, get him in trouble. Um, the the uh, uh, Similarly, uh, Wilson learns from Lincoln uh, about the, the draft, the, the Civil War draft in the North, does produce soldiers for the army, but it also leads to things like the riot in New York City in 1863. And Wilson gets around that by by localizing the draft, making having it enforced. So just as your neighbors are informing on you and making sure you've got the right patriotism, they're also the ones who are actually your local draft board. That's right. And he's also doing away with exemptions. You can't buy uh, a substitute, for example. So I mean, Lincoln's uh, or Wilson rather is a student of history. I mean, he's a professor before the war. He's written about American history, and what we were trying to get at with this volume was this is an opportunity to do a case study. We always say you have to learn from history. Okay, well, what did the World War One generation learn from the Civil War? What was their experience? And here's a great example of how Wilson is learning from his predecessor in how to mobilize a nation and how not to turn the nation against you in the middle of a major conflict. Now, obviously, when people talk about learning from history, many people leap to the idea of, of war, of tactics, uh, of strategies, not, not repeating the same military mistakes. Uh, David, you write comparatively about 
leaders from the military leaders from the two wars, Grant uh, from the Civil War and, and John J. Pershing, the, the American the leader of the American Expeditionary Force in, in France in World War One. But you also write about Douglas Haig, uh, the British general. Why why is Haig in the mix with Grant and Pershing? <laughs> so I I cheated, I'm afraid. I uh, I <laughs> undercut the uh, avowed purpose of the volume but it was i think in a in a good cause um one of the things that i had noticed um and i'm sure your listeners would would recognize this is that you don't ever see a photo or painting of ulysses s grant smiling Hmm. you don't see a picture of him cheerful and happy And yet we know from his biographies, we know from his autobiography that he was he was a fairly cheerful person outside of the Civil War era. Um, He Mm. brought his family with him. He uh, he had lots of uh, parties and entertainment. And so I was sort of fascinated by that lack. And one of the things I realized was the way in which. Grant becomes identified with the war itself. The Civil War is a war beyond all imagining um, for us today. You know, we we sort of think about about the the four hundred the six hundred to seven hundred thousand casualties fatalities in the Civil War. That's in a population of twenty nine million people in the United States, that would be the equivalent today of about 30 million people dying, mm. 30 million Americans dying out of a population of 330. That's just beyond our imagining. And so when you're dealing with that kind of war and you're dealing with someone who was the the great general of that war, the only way you can't you can't be cheerful about it. And so what I what I started to think was that Grant is seen not as an individual and as a human being, but as an avatar of this civil war that is beyond all comprehension. Um, and when I wanted to think about who to compare him to in World War One, Pershing was the obvious choice, but Pershing was never the commander of the main army fighting the main enemy in the main theater. He was always a subsidiary army to Foch, General uh, Marshal Foch, uh, the the French general, to mm-hmm. Douglas Haig, the British general. And so, as I said uh, a minute ago, I cheated and I brought in Haig as a comparator who in 1918 was the commander of the largest army on the Western Front fighting the largest German army. And the fascinating thing is they're remembered and represented in very similar ways. You don't see a picture of Haig smiling. Mm-hmm. You don't you don't get him treated as an individual. He, like Grant, is a representative of the war that he fought. And you cannot look at them independently of those wars or history does not look at them independently of those wars because those wars are so overwhelming um, that they just blot out uh, any 
any individuality that those that those generals have. So, you know, it's it is bringing a British general in is not in line with the avowed purpose of the book, but I think it serves that larger purpose of understanding the two conflicts in a way that illustrates for both of them the way they live as cultural memory for the Americans and for the Europeans. The uh, the the afterword of the book that you've edited here also compares uh, Grant and Pershing, uh, a piece by Stephen Trout that looks at their memoirs. Yep. Um, and and he has a lot to say there. Um, but let me hold off on the, that. Maybe we'll get back to that as time permits. The uh, so there's so many different directions to go with this. You've got you've got essays on medicine and how that changes during uh, the two wars. Essays on uh, the environment, uh, how the wars affect the landscape. Um, black military service. Uh, it, it, it's really a uh, a wide ranging set of topics that you look at. Uh, so let me ask this question, the kind of thing that, that no one probably can, can easily answer. Uh, what are your favorite essays, each of you, in this book, other than your own? <laughs> uh, thank you for that, that latter uh, disclaimer. Uh, right, you can't name each other's, because uh, if you don't, uh, then right, it'd be bad right. feeling. Uh, uh, among the authors that you gathered, who else, which essays really struck you? So, I, I, sorry, kid. I'm going to jump in. I, I'm going to, I'm going to cheat again a little bit. I, my, my two favorites are the ones on the environment and on uh, trauma, um, and because I think they reflect not just the comparison uh, between Civil War and the world and World War One, but they also reflect a sort of shift and growth in military history, which is that that military history for a long time, fairly or not, has has been pigeonholed as being about battlefields and tactics and, and strategies. And, and that's been true enough that seeing scholars starting to break out and and look at the way in which the Civil War trauma the Civil War combat affected veterans in ways that we would find very familiar today with what we would call PTSD or combat shock. Um, and then, and and maybe even more excitingly, the way in which we can think about the trenches at Petersburg, the trenches on the Western Front as their own environment with environmental impacts and, and sort of consequences it it's just very exciting for me as as what some people have politely described as as being a senior scholar um, <laughs> is is exciting to see in the ways in which the next generations are really building a whole new kind of military history and bringing it into the kind of volumes that that I'm helping to put together. Kid, what about you? Uh, I agree with David that. Um, the ones on medicine, 
uh, particularly the one on trauma by uh, Kathleen uh, Thompson. I, I, I think those are really well done. And if you put the two on medicine side by side, <clears throat> so Shauna Devine and Dale Smith wrote the other one about medical care, uh, physical medical care. And then we pair that with Kathleen Thompson's uh, piece about mental trauma. You can see also this divergence that there is clearly an, an, an increased standard of care for the physical body. Medical technology has come a long way between the Civil War and the Great War um, in one essay. But on mental care, on trauma, in understanding the trauma effects on the brain, there was almost nothing. I mean, we, the, the, the human brain was still a mystery to folks in the 20th century. They still had a hard time connecting it to the trauma of war. And of course, it's not until much later in the 20th century, near the end of the 20th century, when PTSD is actually uh, diagnosed uh, during Vietnam. Um, I think that's, uh, I, I think the stories in there are, are haunting and powerful, but I think it also demonstrates what we can learn or what the great war generation did learn and what they did not learn from the civil war. Yeah. I thought that was interesting seeing those two essays side by side because, uh, uh, Shauna Devine, who, who has been on this show has an excellent book on, uh, how American medicine learned from the civil war. Uh, in that essay, she and her co-authors show all this progress in terms of, of, uh, between the two wars, especially in the development of germ theory, uh, but in her in this essay and her other work, she she makes makes it quite clear the Civil War doctors are not not fools and ignoramuses. Uh, they're learning continuously, and and that shows up in what happens during the First World War. Uh, there, those two essays also differ from the others in one particular, which I will leave out as a tease as we go to a break, and I'll come back and ask you about that in just a moment. When we return, we're talking tonight with David J. Silby and Kanazorn Wanswichanilai. They are the editors of Wars Civil and Great, The American Experience in the Civil War and World War One. I'm Jerry Prokopovich. This is Civil War Talk Radio. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. Tune in to the Voice America Variety Channel on the Voice America Talk Radio Network. Voice America Variety broadcasts a diverse array of topics, reaching a global community. Our experts come from all walks of life, and the topics they discuss are everything from current events, arts and entertainment, leadership, parenting, relationships, self-improvement, career advice, and a variety of other topics. Check us out today. You're sure to find something of interest. Voice America Variety. Talk on today's hot topics. Voice America is on LinkedIn. Connect with us today. Have you become a member yet? Sign up now to become a member of Voice America. It's always free and easy. Plus, you get to take advantage of some great member benefits. Get unlimited access to millions of hours of on-demand content across all of our channels. Keep track of your favorite episodes, shows, and hosts in your own customizable library. Find out what shows you might be interested in based on your favorites. Plus, you get insider access with our newsletter. Membership gives you more. Sign up at voiceamerica.com and click register at the top right. 
stimulating talk. It gets those synapses in your brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com. You are listening to Civil War Talk Radio. If you have a question or comment about our program, please send an email to prokopovichg at ecu dot edu. That's P-R-O-K-O-P-O-W-I-C-Z-G at ecu dot edu. Now, back to Civil War Talk Radio. And welcome back to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, talking tonight with David J. Silby and Canon Zorn Wangser Janelai, authors, or editors, I should say, and authors of the essay collection Wars Civil and Great, The American Experience in the Civil War and World War One. So the medical essays, the one on uh, brain trauma, PTSD, and the one on, on uh, more on surgery and physical medicine, do show progress. Um, but as I read the other essays, it, it struck me uh, in, in the discussion of civil liberties, uh, as you pointed out, Kid, the, the, there was really more freedom in the North under Lincoln than there was in the United States under Wilson in terms of being able to express opinions about the war. Um, uh, Deborah Sheffer's essay on black military service points out what great strides – were made after the Civil War in part because of black military participation that certainly contributes to the 14th and 15th Amendments being added, whereas World War One is followed by the Red Summer of 1919 and anti-black racist violence. Um, the uh, uh, essay on the environment uh, that, that we were just talking about, comparing the trenches at Petersburg and uh, the Western Front, uh, the, the author there, Brian Allen Drake, more or less says uh, there's really not that much comparison to be made. The trenches in Europe were way worse, uh, if only because uh, environmentally they were below sea level. They were always full of water, and it was a horrible way to live. Uh, so we've got worse uh, worse black experience, worse trench experience, um, worse civil liberty experience. Uh, kid, your essay on uh, veterans and benefits after the war suggests that uh, Civil War veterans were treated better than World War I veterans by the government. And uh, even uh, the, the piece I really, really enjoyed, uh, along with yours, uh, the comparison of Grant's memoirs and Pershing's memoirs, there's no question that Grant's memoirs are much better uh, as literature than Pershing memoirs. So, conclusion, gentlemen, is that the Civil War, uh, that, that instead of progress, things got worse. World War I was worse in all these particulars. Did, was that an intentional theme? I, uh, I don't think we started off with that as a theme, but I think that that was one of the ones that became apparent as we were working on it, um, because you're right that there are sort of many ways in which what we think of as progress, the world advancing is just not is just not happening. And and one of the things that I think became clear was that we really are 
comparing wars across eras. So you can think of the Civil War as one of the first modern wars in American history, but in many ways it's also the last war of the creation of the United States, of the excuse me, sequence that starts with the revolution and ends up with a civil war. It's about the definition of what America is. And after that, what we're seeing is the sort of rise of this kind of mass industrialized total war that the Civil War shows some aspects of, but that World War One and then World War Two are really the primary representatives of. These are wars of global scope of global catastrophe in a way that the that the civil war um, the civil war was not, and so I think that some of this, the fact that it's worse after World War One for many of these things reflects not necessarily anything specific to the United States, but represents something that is happening on a on a global scale. Um, you know, World War Two is much worse for everybody than just about any other war uh, in their history, not because of anything they've done specifically, but because of where war has gone. Um, and that's to a certain degree true of the United States. The other the other part of this, and I'll, and this, I'll finish up on this, is the Civil War was the last war that we really fought at home. Wars after the Civil War, and there's some exceptions to that, but were mostly fought abroad. And so when you talk about civil liberties in the Civil War, you're talking about arresting people who might be helping out their families or their brothers or, you know, arguing in favor of reconciliation between parts of the United States. When you're talking about people in the in World War One and civil liberties, you're talking about people who are arguing in favor of the the Hun, the Germans, or of the Russian Revolution. And so there's a very different perspective in terms of who we're fighting and what that fighting is about between the Civil War and World War One, and it really reflects itself in how things go in World War One. So now let me push back on that a little bit that the the idea that uh, you know the 20th century wars are, are worse just because of the way war has gone is certainly uh, a, a strong argument but in the uh, kid in your essay on the veterans of the war you point out that Wilson made a conscious effort once again to learn from the Civil War and not to repeat what he perceived as a mistake of the Civil War, and the result really is is not good. Uh, what was he trying to learn, and, and and what did he get wrong? Well, so I think that to go to the broader question as well, I think what was surprising was, or what was an un, unintentional larger lesson for me at least, mm-hmm. was that everyone says you're supposed to learn from history. Well, what if you learn the wrong lessons from history? <laughs> which uh, we seem to do a lot. 
and, and, and mm-hmm. this issue of the veterans is a prime example. So Wilson comes of uh, political age. He becomes a player <clears throat> on the political scene uh, during the progressive era. And progressives are looking at the budget and they see that the cost of uh, supplying uh, pensions to Civil War veterans, of course, only United States veterans, not Confederate veterans, um, is just causing this crippling uh, deficit um, in the uh, in, in the federal budget. It's the largest item in the federal budget. It grows every single year. They see this as enormously wasteful. They do not see the veterans as contributing anything else to society. And it's, by the way, it's not just Wilson. It is the doughboy generation, those who went over to Europe. That generation internalized this, too. They saw that what happened with the Civil War veterans and their pensions as wasteful. And when they came back, they said, yeah, we're not going to do that. We're going to be better than that. It's okay what Wilson and his administration wants to do, which is to basically sever ties. Now, fast forward a little bit, these veterans, these doughboys coming back, they realize that they are not as economically sound as those who stayed in the United States and enjoyed this period of economic boom. So they request a, a, a bonus, and this is where the, the American Legion, um, veterans of foreign wars, organizations like that that are advocating for them are, are really coming to power. And, well, I think we know the story the, of early 20th century that the Congress votes to give them a bonus to be payable in 1945 when the Great Depression hits. They say, we'd like the funds early. 1932, they march on Washington, D.C. There's the bonus army that um, uh, Herbert Hoover disperses and just ruins his reputation. And um, that's a lesson that Franklin Roosevelt learns. So come World War II, he's all in on the GI Bill. We're not going to go back and have that same experience as we had with the veterans of World War I, who in turn were trying to learn the lessons from the Civil War. So we that's what happens when you learn the wrong lessons from history. You go back to the drawing board. I mean, it's interesting you make the point, therefore, that really the GI Bill has its roots not in, in World War One, but in the Civil War, when the country did show a certain amount of generosity to those who fought uh, to save the country. That and, and when Wilson didn't want to do that, uh, that didn't work nearly as well. Well, I, I found this... Uh, just a, a fascinating book in a lot of ways because of the way, as is pointed out in the introduction, that World War One really has fallen off the historical radar for so many Americans. Uh, when I was growing up, my father started his teaching career at Foch Junior High in Detroit, which it opened in 1924 and was named, of course, for uh, the Generalissimo. Uh, and which I just discovered today, the building's about to be torn down. Uh, it's beautiful, old school. Uh, my mother taught her entire high school teaching career in Detroit at Pershing High School, uh, where the football team is still called the Doughboys. Uh, that opened in 1930. So in their generation, the, 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 there's, there are things named for Foch in Pershing. I would guess there isn't one in 100 students that at schools like that who would have any idea who those people are today. Yeah, Jerry, can I jump in for a second? Because Please, I, yeah. I think that's we, a, we have about two minutes, so you got to okay, I'll, I'll each, each get one. 
Absolutely. I, I just wanted to reinforce exactly what you're saying. And the example I use is there are three generals in American history who have the equivalent of six star ranks. There's lots who have five star, lots who have four stars. There are three who have six stars. And every time I talk to an audience, I ask who the three people are. And two of the three are immediately identifiable. It's George Washington and Ulysses S. Grant. Mm-hmm. And nobody gets the third who is John J. Pershing, because World War I and Pershing have disappeared off our radar. And so no one remembers what those school names mean, what the mascot names mean, or who was, along with Grant and Washington, the highest ranking general in American military history. Well, uh, kid, last word for you. Um, I, I don't know how to beat David's uh, line there, but um, yes, absolutely. I think that what inspired this um, talk was, uh, or this book rather, was taking a look at these two anniversaries. We just, we did, when I was a professor in Texas, we did four years of marking the 150th anniversary of the Civil War, which was immediately followed by the centennial of World War One. And I think that in thinking about how we look at American history, where the breaking points are, what conflicts, what time periods we read alongside each other, if we, we, we need to rethink, we need to think about generations and how they experience time and what we can learn about um, the, the scope of history, the lessons of history, if we think about how it is lived uh, in different time periods. So instead of seeing the First World War as a product of the 20th century and connect that with World War II, what do we learn from connecting it uh, with the Civil War and seeing it as the last uh, major conflict of the 19th century. It gives us a different perspective, I think, on both the 19th and the 20th centuries. So don't get comfortable in your historical narratives. Shake it up. And, and listeners, you can do that by reading Wars, Civil and Great, The American Experience in the Civil War and World War One. It's edited by David J. Silvey and Canazorn Wongser Channelai. They've been our guests tonight on Civil War Talk Radio. Guys, thank you so much uh, for this book and for coming on the show tonight. Thank you. Thank you, Jerry. And listeners, as always, thank you for listening to Civil War Talk Radio. Thank you for embarking on a part of American history this week. Civil War Talk Radio with Jerry Prokopovich can be heard live every Wednesday at 4 p.m. Pacific Time, 7 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Have a good week.